Welcome to The Storyboard, a podcast about the creative minds behind today's leading film, television, and digital media productions. We explore the topics affecting today's top content creators from process to politics and anything in between. The Storyboard is a joint production brought to you by Nice Shoes and Sound Lounge, leaders in post-production audio and video. I'm Sean Grace, and we're recording this conversation in one of the many palatial studios here at Sound Lounge on Fifth Avenue in the Flatiron District in the heart of New York City. Today's guests are Livio Sanchez, an award-winning editor whose 20-plus year career spans projects with such directors as Catherine Bigelow, Sebastian Cordero, Sam Esmail, and Christopher Guest, as well as artists Arcade Fire, Kanye West, Gnarls Barkley, U2, and Green Day. Livio is co-founder of Cause and Effect Media, which specializes in branded content production and independent films. Livio was the lead editor for the New York Times virtual reality project, The Displaced, which recently won a multitude of awards, including a Cannes Lion Grand Prix. Also with me is Alexander Rea, currently head of creative technology at Framestore. As an interactive producer, Alexander's career includes projects with MTV, Anomaly, and IPG Media Lab, as well as ad agencies BBH, Droga, Wyden and Kennedy, and Co-Collective. Alexander was the creative technology lead for the recent Lockheed Martin McCann VR project, Field Trip to Mars, which won 19 Cannes Lions Awards. Alexander is also a musician and percussionist, and he has secret clearance with the U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm excited to have both of you here because you were both involved in recent groundbreaking virtual reality projects, one from the journalistic docu-style experience and one from a rather novel group-based vehicle VR education experience. Now, VR is, of course, a hot topic currently and was a dominant technology at NAB in Vegas back in April, and it's starting to make appearances at various award shows such as AICP Next and, of course, Can Lions. But everyone's still struggling with how this new media platform will be utilized and where it's going. But these two projects stand out for their uniqueness and impact. Starting with you, Livio, can you describe the New York Times Displaced Project? What was the premise? What was the idea? The brief I first received was to try and document the resilience of children in war zones. And it was a joint effort with Verse, that's what the company was called at the time, they're now within, uh, and the New York Times Magazine. And the interesting thing about it was it was both a journalistic written piece, a photojournalistic piece, and this VR film component all combined into one issue of the New York Times Magazine. The original idea was also to capture three different children in three different places in three different war zones. So we got a kid in the Ukraine, a kid from the South Sudan, and a Syrian refugee who was in Libya, I believe it was. Uh, Verseworks uh, handled the production. What was the setup? How did they capture the footage? They have, a, at the time, a custom-built rig because there's not really a standard camera or format. There's a lot of different cameras out there and a lot of different formats that people are experimenting with. Mm. So Verse, out of necessity has built their own rigs using eight GoPro cameras built into one rig. Mm -hmm. And they use eight cameras in order to 
capture a stereoscopic, which is what sets them apart. There's this 3D element. Mm-hmm. They use two of the cameras that face front, two that face right, two that face rear, and two that face left. Mm-hmm. The second camera in each direction is the stereoscopic or alternate eye. Mm-hmm. So you get more depth in using these special customized rigged rigs. Mm-hmm. And what about the audio, what they use to capture? They also use special binaural microphones that capture the binaural experience mm-hmm. that allows you to hear things as you turn your head in the actual space as if you're really there. Right. So if you turn right and something's happening to your left, you'll hear it out of your left ear and it'll encourage you to turn back and listen to what's going on over there. Right, right, right. Um, Alexander, your project was totally different. Um, totally, slightly. <laughs> I mean, from most VR productions, really, uh, being that you essentially built a VR headset into the interior of a school bus. Uh, can you describe Field Trip to Mars for us? Well, first when uh, McCann came to us, uh, came to Frame Store, uh, Eric Silver at McCann basically said, uh, here's a here's this opportunity, um, and the brief is really simple. We want to transport kids to Mars. It has to look like a school bus from the outside. It has to look like a school bus on the inside. Go. <laughs> and it was like, okay, uh, well, I know I can do 40% of this, maybe. We know a handful of things that we think we can do here, but the rest is unknown, the unknown unknowns. Mm-hmm. And when... Uh, when I originally had pitched it to the team at McCann, it was basically set up like, hey, this is like when we went to space for the first time. There's a lot of things we're gonna have to figure out here. And there was a lot of risk, and uh, and we all assumed that risk on both sides, and we moved forward with it. So what were the mechanics? No goggles, no headset. That's kind of the running line, right? Right. What you have is you get onto the school bus, and you are looking out through 4K transparent screens, that we custom built, literally ourselves, putting these things together. And when the bus starts moving, what you have seen outside the window now transitions to the 4K display being pumped by the uh, Unreal game engine, and now you're looking out at Mars, and it's synced one-to-one with the bus movement. Mm -hmm. And we say it's group VR uh, because it is a virtual reality. It wasn't augmented, and it wasn't mixed MR. It was straight up VR, a virtual reality outside the window, all built in game engine, all real-time rendered. And uh, the greatest thing about this was that when the adults and the big kids and the real little kids, which was the target, they are the target for this, education, you know, the, the first people on Mars are in school today and, you know, empowering and inspiring children is kind of the big overall brand kind of position here. This project was part of Lockheed's Big Generation Beyond, and it's a big education initiative. This is, was one small piece for their larger project, a very big piece for us, as this project was. But when you came onto the bus, you didn't see any technology. Technology was invisible. And I think for me personally, that's how to uh, really make the most impact is lower those barriers of entry. Yeah, so how did you engineer the windows? That's kind of interesting how the children came on the bus and they could see outside and look like a normal bus. Yeah. The bus starts moving and then the windows yeah. change. How, how, how did you do that? That's classified. <laughs> That's um, where the DOD yeah, clearance sorry. comes in. <laughs> you go to your big box store, you buy a 4K TV. These were four 84-inch 4K screens. A Standard LCD, like you have at home, is made up of a backlight element and then another element which actually displays the image itself. 
and power supplies and all these other guts. Well, you can take all that apart and you end up with essentially a 84-inch wide diagonal wafer, thin wafer that we then inserted into a completely different enclosure with uh, glass on either side of that, a layer of LEDs, and then on the, on the opposite end, switchable film. Switchable film like you have on a bathroom in a trendy restaurant or on a conference room. Essentially, it's nothing more than an extremely thin piece of film that when an electric current is applied to it, the uh, little molecules scatter, so it's transparent. And then when you remove the electric current, it goes opaque again. So that was one piece that we had designed to go on one end. Then you have strips of LED lights. Then this panel from the inside of a 84-inch 4K screen. So everything is transparent. And then we switch the film opaque. So now you can no longer see out the window. That also cuts some of the ambient light down. Because since we removed a lot of the components from the LCD itself, one of those main components is the brightness. So in those big boxes you, you buy and you hang on your wall, the majority of that is a power supply and a backlight element, basically a big white rectangle that's like super bright, and that's pushing the brightness of the TV towards you, the viewer. Well, we remove that piece. So we have to now artificially create the backlight. So the bus itself gets all kind of black box theater, and it's now black inside. We've now knocked out most of the light, and then, then the display panel itself comes on. And that essentially is how we created the, the transparent to um, uh, Mars mm. trick. Right. And the landscape outside also responded to what was happening yeah. on the road. So not only was it a bouncy school bus that made all the tech a little bit difficult to kind of keep in check, yeah. Um, all that bouncing, though, added to the experience mm -hmm. because we were able to capture all the movement of the bus using tech that's very similar to what you have in your phone, like an accelerometer, mm -hmm. and also the speed of the bus. And you know, I, I can go into more crazy depth on that. Mm. Um, well, you know, when you when you think about VR, uh, up to now, um, essentially most VR projects are experienced through. Um, head-mounted displays, right? Yeah. It's very isolated. It's a very personal experience. Uh, what intrigued me about this uh, project was that it was essentially social. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious to see how you felt the social aspect of it changed the experience itself. Children were the target, right? And we know there are studies out there that, you know, engagement and, ha and learning is happens the best in groups. So you could take kids, you could take big kids, kids that jump on rocks, adults, whomever, and put them in a group, and there's, there's, there's gonna be an entertaining cross-pollination of emotion and just everybody mixing together. And like you said, a headset is isolating. The emotional response that we were able to see firsthand from the kids was crazy. The first time we started moving with the kids, because they were real kids. Like you watch the case study video, those are real kids experiencing it for the first time. And they were freaking out. And we were blown away ourselves because we didn't have the chance to get groups and groups and groups of kids to do a bunch of testing. It was like we tested it as much as, as, much as we could, then we put the kids in. And to see that reaction, that raw emotion reaction from the kids who were like, whoa, WTF, what's going on here? 
it was it was crazy. It was very it was a very 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 special moment, and and we definitely had the opportunity to really blow some people away, mm, adults cool. and and children, you know, yeah. because it looked great, but also sounded great, and the sound was a big piece of this as well. Yeah, and I want to talk about yeah. sound in a little bit. Um, talking about the post aspect related to uh, to VR productions, Olivio, um, this was the second. New York Times project you had worked on? The Displaced was the second one, yeah. Yeah, the first one was Walking New York. Walking New York. Yeah. I love the... both of those. Yeah, very I absolutely cool. love both of those. Walking New York, that was the one with, it ends with like the aerial photo of, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, right over here yeah, right on over the here. Flatiron Building. Um, I yeah. love that. I love that one a lot. So as an editor, obviously most of your experience has been in conventional film editing. Um, what are some of the unique challenges to VR editing versus what we all know in the conventional 2D world. Yeah, it's pretty different as far as what how you can actually make an edit in VR. Technically, I'm still using the same software. Right now, I'm using Adobe Premiere. But that's where the similarities end. I, I can't cut fast, or I'll have, or my audience will go into shock <laughs> and, and get sick. <laughs> so it was a, it was a, you, you learn that very quickly when you bring all of your flatty, that's the term that people in VR now use for flat screens. They call them flatty. So if you bring your flatty experience into VR and you try to cut fast or just make a basic hard cut, you quickly realize that in VR you can't do that. Interesting. Because you're not watching a flat screen. You're inside. You're you're within the, the scene. You can't direct the audience fully. They're going to come in and look around. And so you have to account for that time that it takes for your audience to look around the room as I'm looking around. What's behind me? What's in front of me? You're to my right. You're to my left. And so you have to account and accommodate for that and let them experience that moment and then find a way to transition to the next scene. Mm. So the pacing is radically different. The way you watch your dailies, for example, is different. You're not looking at a flat screen. You're looking at at an entire scene around you. There are no close-ups in Were you in referencing any head-mounted display as you were doing the edit? I was lucky that that film was the first time that at least at Verse we were able to hook up a live tap out of the Oculus DK2. So yeah. bef- the films that were done before, they had to actually export a QuickTime, mount it into a Samsung, and watch your edit. And, then, and that takes time. You have to export, and that takes some processing time. Well, I was fortunate enough to have an actual setup that I can actually see my footage through an Oculus. Not that I edit in the headset. That's, mm-hmm. that's challenging. But I'll, I'll watch each setup and look around and then start to lay things out on a timeline like I normally do. Mm-hmm. But then as you start looking at your cuts and your sequences, you want to go in and and see how long it takes for you to look around and see where the action's happening. And right. But we're not okay. at the point yet where there's the, like the video village where the, everybody can sit in their little, you know, little tented little area and see everything. I mean, you can imagine like here, there's, there's a bunch of people with the headsets on looking around while you're over here shooting. Yeah, Video uh, Village is a little different in VR. Yeah. There, you can get a live stitch out mm-hmm. of some of the, he, some of the gears. Um, that they have, and you can the director can see it through a, an Oculus. But the Video Village now that I just saw in the film that I just worked on, they had four monitors yeah. trying to replicate the 360 experience yeah. so you can see the quadrants yeah. that you're looking at. And that's as close as you can get, but you can't replicate right. being 
inside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know um, you talked about stitching there. Um, that certainly seemed to be, uh, you know, sort of a, a big obstacle a couple of years ago with VR is just dealing with the stitching aspect of it. Where are we at these days with software and uh, I don't know if there's auto stitching or how does it how does it done now? Yeah, the rigs that are still predominantly used require stitching with stitching software and stitching meaning you take these different cameras and stitch the frames into a 360 image. There are some new cameras out there. Facebook has a camera that actually has 17 lenses and records vertical data. And it basically takes the data and renders it and creates your 360 image. So there's no, there's no stitching involved. And I believe Google has a camera like that now, Odyssey. Mm-hmm. The problem right now is that it takes a day to render 60 seconds. So the processing is, wow. <laughs> is we just need more, more bandwidth mm-hmm. and more processing power. But that's coming. These cameras, eventually stitching will be a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. We'll just have these VR cameras that have a single file that come out in, in 360. Right. But right now, that's one of the major hurdles is the technology to produce these actual 360 images. Mm-hmm. Now, what about sound in post when you're doing the edit? Do you handle that differently than a typical 5.1 edit? There's a couple of places that are, have been perfecting the, both the hardware and the software where they're actually placing in the sound space on a video frame where they want the sound to be coming from. And they can lock in if the sound's coming from a speaker behind me. They can point that sound to be coming from that speaker and using the binaural headgear, track it with your head movement. Mm-hmm. And that is a magic that I've just started to experience in a sound mix, but I'm not the the, uh, the expert as to how they're creating these mm-hmm. technologies and, and the, the software, but it's coming as well. I was out at NAB and was uh, speaking with an old friend, uh, legendary sound designer Frank Serafini. Uh, he had worked on films like Tron and, and Hunt for Red October and, uh, and the early VR-themed films uh, Lawnmower Man and, and Virtuosity. And he said that, uh, that they're working on new technology for VR mixing with, uh, with head-mounted displays uh, where you would manipulate uh, like sound objects or balls and move them around in a virtual space using, I guess, VR gloves and, uh, and uh, virtual mixing consoles. Yeah, that still feels a little sci-fi to me, <laughs> like being working the controls yeah. and looking at your mixing board or your editing keyboard inside. Right. I, I actually try to spend as little time inside the headgear when I'm editing mm-hmm. and make either the director <laughs> look at, yeah. at the footage so <laughs> I can react to what he's seeing or she's seeing yeah. and, uh, and actually showing other people and getting their responses and if they're getting sick. One of my biggest things is to actually make people feel safe and comfortable and not get sick inside. I don't want you to eject, meaning, oh, I can't handle this and and come out. I want to keep you there. Um, Alexander, did you find any of that, um, that phenomena, that sort of nausea thing in the bus? Because we have the movement of the bus controlling the movement of the content on the screen, it was synced one-to-one in real life, it was synced one to one in the in the viewer's head, you know. So that movement and feeling is represented on the screen. So you're not going to get seasick. You're not going to get nauseous. Gotcha. Um, yes, we all know that the in headset experiences. There are some people that will flat out say, "I just get nauseous," uh, and they'll never try it again. Um, yeah. But then when they put on a headset again and, and try a different, maybe perhaps a more 
advanced produced piece, they'll find that they don't get sick because the, pre- the piece was produced uh, with uh, a little bit more care. Yeah, that's an important part of ado- early adoption. If someone has a yeah. bad VR experience, yeah. they're not going to come back, yeah. especially if it makes them sick. Yeah. But if they have a great yeah. VR experience, yeah. then it's... I think it's... it also applies to restaurants as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not going to come back here again because yeah. it was shitty. <laughs> I got food poisoning. Uh, <laughs> I don't want any VR poisoning. Yes, yes, yes. No, I need to... I, yeah, thank you. Um, How did you handle sound on the bus? The production company we worked with was Q Department. And they have a division called Mach 1, which is their, their imprint for their VR game engine stuff. And they had, they had some experience with, uh, with game engine. I was introduced to them uh, through McCann. And they uh, provided a library of assets that uh, were all custom. And in the case of, of our experience, it was a bus. So we know that uh, one of their uh, you know, engineers recorded sand and rocks hitting the bus. Uh, with the mics inside the bus and everything. So we got some really great raw, real assets, right? And they mixed them to a degree, so the fidelity of the asset was was great. Uh, but there was no mastering to a, to a level of stereo panning and everything like that because for us, it's not a linear, in the case of displaced or, you know, uh, any, any, of those, any of those experiences where they're linear, there's a start and a stop, and you have your audio track and video track. This is a game engine experience. So this is now all real-time rendered, look anywhere, do anything, game engine. So inside the engine is the control for the sound. So we have a developer at Framestore who's uh, extremely talented with sound mixing of the sound objects in engine. So the sandstorm comes up. He used the assets from Q department and essentially mixed, quote-unquote, the sound objects in the engine. Uh Uh-huh. So how did you distribute that sound? What was the speaker setup? In the bus, we had uh, uh, 5x7 car speakers, um, a series of them mounted above the windows. That was your right and your left. And then we had subs. And there were different zones within the bus controlled by uh, up to 4,000 watts of, uh, of audio power. We didn't push it. Because it would have scared the shit out of everyone in the bus, but we could have. <laughs> but I was using classic audio gear, like you used to, you know, maybe in high school. You know, I I had a car in high school, and I used to soup it up with all the audio gear. It, you know, I hadn't seen some of these brand names in twenty years, <laughs> and it's like, oh damn, wow, I remember these brand names. You know, and you pop open your trunk, and there's your crossover. Alpine, and, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Rockford Fallsgate and Alpine, and I was like, I didn't even know these brands were still around. <laughs> I didn't either. And it's and I've got we got Rockford Fosgate amps. I'm like, yeah, and we're and we're putting them inside of a of a of a, of a bus. Yeah, but we have uh, one PC in our suite of computers that we had was basically the the sound PC, right? So that was outputting the uh, 7.1, which then was distributed accordingly through the speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the lift uh, and the and the mixing was done all, was all done real time. So that's one of the benefits of working with the real time engine is that the the video is rendered real time and the audio is rendered real time. Livio, I, I assume the challenges for audio mix were were quite different for displaced. Well, it, unlike the experience of the bus, yeah. where the where it's a communal experience and everybody's g- turning towards the sound, inside of a headset, you might be looking in a different direction. So you're yeah. going to hear it, and you need to binaural, yeah. binaurally 
turn yeah. the sound as you turn your head. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a I'm, I'm correct yeah. there. It's yeah, I mean, it's, it's like there's 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 like two tracks right now in the in the world of of, of VR, right? Uh, which is different from 360, which is a big like I you know everyone in the um, in the community you know is is drawing that line between this is a 360 experience and this is a VR experience, and um, it gets a little bit gray depending on who you're talking to, but um, real time rendered requires an engine to power that. If you're using a headset that has controllers, you're moving around, you're picking stuff up, you're doing something that is dynamic, that yeah. is only going to be your experience. Um, talk about the CG aspect of the Mars project. What were some of the challenges there? Our CG modelers, our artists at Framestore, the same folks that are working with ZBrush making rocks um, are making rocks for Mars for Game Engine. There's a polygon limitation because of the rendering power of the PCs. Uh, but they're the same artists that would make photorealistic rocks or bugs or creatures or spaceships for any of our other commercial production work. Mm-hmm. They just are now making it for Game Engine. And then there's textures that you have to make that go on the objects in your classic CG pipeline with the limitations of Game Engine because it's real-time rendering and it requires a significant processing real-time to make it happen. Mm-hmm. At the time of our production, we were using great graphics cards and we still had a limitation because you're limited to the power of the PC in our case or the power, you know, if you're building a console game for Xbox or PlayStation, you're limited to that. Livio, you had, uh, you had mentioned a short film VR project you're, uh, you're currently working on. Uh, what's that about? One of the pieces I'm working on right now is a VR film for the show Mr. Robot. It's a VR episode. Love that show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great show. Mm-hmm. So, Love that show. They've actually made an episode, a little short film in VR, where you're what? inside Elliot's apartment, and you're in. I'm not going to say too much more, mm-hmm. but cool. I can talk about the way they're going to premiere the film. Is at Comic Con this year in a, in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and they're going to have four thousand headsets in a. They called it a stadium or some sort of uh, <laughs> arena. Four thousand. Four thousand. Like your VRs. No, they're, they're going to use cardboard because yeah, it's just well, it's 4, yeah, more cost effective. Yeah. But they're going <laughs> to sideload all the headsets and lock them and then unlock them at the same time. So all 4,000 people at the venue can watch it at the same time. But then globally, you can download the app and have access once they unlock it and watch it all at the same time. So that will create that communal premiere experience. Speaking of communal premiere experiences, uh, the Times distributed, what, a million-plus Google Cardboards uh, with the release of The Displaced with their Sunday magazine? The great thing about The Displaced is that they have the distribution in place of getting the newspapers out to people. And Google Cardboard made it very affordable and easy for them to actually send cardboard to all the subscribers and reach a million people, or a million and a half people in one distribution. Yeah, that was fantastic. When that showed up that Sunday morning, that was a big... For me, as a as a as a uh, technology-minded, technology-focused person, but also someone who is is very interested in where the technology and humanity kind of blend, and where technology is invisible but yet it is providing sort of a lift to an experience and 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 humanity, that was was one of those moments I think milestones where it's like okay, we are taking a distribution platform that is a hundred something years old, and now we are 
doing something quite simple but significant for the New York Times mm-hmm. because it wasn't l- like slipping a direct mail piece inside of the Saturday paper. It was, we're going to change the bags. We're going to ship this cardboard thing that, let's be honest, more than half of the people probably didn't know what the F this thing was that showed up. But yet they took that risk anyways. Mm-hmm. And it showed up. And it you had to change the delivery behavior and the people delivering it, the way they stacked were different. Everything was different about that. But it forced every it forced that adoption, or we hope it forced the adoption, right, into everyone. And that's the type of punch in the neck type of lift we need to make these things work. Well, yeah, even like you were saying, when I received mine, even though I worked on it and was immersed in the making, yeah. when I received mine on that Sunday morning and I I saw the magazine, which I hadn't seen before, yeah. and I saw the picture on the cover mm-hmm. and open and read the articles, I experienced it again yeah. in a whole different manner because I got more depth from the article. Than right. I got from it was, just making the documentary. It was backed up by a very, very beautiful print effort as well. I mean, it was very the whole package from you know tip to tail, and that was just so well executed. And that that's one of the things I think marketers will discover. I, one of the other films I did was for a Scotch called Ardbeg, and they did oh, actually yeah. three little, little. I don't want to call them ads, but I guess you can call them VR ads. They were for a tasting experience of their three different scotches. And they made three little films for each of the different scotches. And the idea behind it is you watch the first film, which is about their 10-year-old scotch, and it shows you where it's made in Scotland, and it takes you on this journey over the ocean onto the island into the peat fields and into the peat oven and over the cliffs and into the factory and down where they have the scotch barrels and the tastemaker. And then you come out, and there's the scotch in front of you, and you taste it and you feel like you've been there <laughs> and right. now you experience the scotch right. and then they made another one for the next scotch so it's along the lines of the New York Times where you have the print article this is you have the actual drink yeah. right. and you got to experience how they make it Livio what other brand based marketing campaigns have you been involved in well another another project I'm working on involves a car company involves Ford and they took a more journalistic approach in that they were bringing one of their race cars back to the Grand Prix of Le Mans. And they hadn't been there in 50 years, so they wanted to document the return to Le Mans and make a flat documentary about it, but a VR film as well. So they captured the race in VR, and fortunately they won the race. Amazing. So it's a, <laughs> it's a great little documentary that Ford uh, basically funded and and um, mm-hmm. branded it for themselves, but it doesn't feel like an ad. It feels like this right. this event. And I'm not a big race car fan, but to be right there alongside the track and watch these cars going by at 200 miles an hour or inside the car or in the pit, you don't get to experience that um, mm-hmm. every day. So where are we heading with all these new technologies for immersive content production? Uh, I'm very curious to see where where it goes stronger with the... Game engine stuff, interactive VR video game. I, video game business is is not small. It's quite significant. Uh, so there's going to be a, a huge amount of gaming opportunity there. So, you know, that world's going to double down. The gamers are going to double down on getting the headsets and the guns and all the other stuff that they could get to do that. Right. Uh, but that's the gaming community, right? That's not necessarily the community that the New York Times is, is looking at. And that's a whole other very potentially successful track 
of immersive uh, like narrative storytelling. But all, all the discoveries that are made during the gaming process yes. will then come over to the storytelling yeah. side and we'll apply You hope, those. like that, that's the best, best case scenario is that crossover happens. Um, and you know, I, I think it's inevitable. Well, I want to thank both of our guests today, Livio Sanchez and Alexander Rea, for spending time with us and for uh, such a riveting conversation. The Storyboard Podcast is brought to you by Nice Shoes and Sound Lounge, leaders in post-production audio and video. Executive producers are yours truly and Mike Gullo with producers Paul DeCames and Taylor Maggard. Audio recording by the one and the only Miles Regan. Thanks, everyone. That's a wrap. And thanks so much for listening. <laughs>